Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health. Hey everyone, Tom Salami here. Welcome back. This is the Breaking Health Podcast. We are without Steve Cooper this one more week. I had done this interview with David Linehan a while ago and I wanted to share it with you because it's really fascinating. David is a physician and he's also head of a med school and uh, he had taken upon himself to find a new way to educate our doctors, to teach our future physicians. And uh, he came upon a system that works. He then connected with a firm called University Ventures to create this company, Tiber Health. Tiber is trying to uh, implement David's approach to, in other med schools. It's actually acquired a med school in Puerto Rico, and that's where David was when I interviewed him. He'll talk about that success and about Tiber's future plans and about some of the struggles facing med schools today. So I know you'll enjoy this conversation with David. Before I let you go, don't forget October 11th is the date of the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. We're uh, working with our co-chairs, put together a fantastic agenda, and you should be there as I've mentioned before, and I'll likely mention again, the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit has sold out the last few years, so uh, don't wait too long. Go to healthag.com, that's the word health, followed by the letters egy.com, to uh, register for the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit, or you can go to digitalhealthcaresummit.com to sign up. Now let's get into this conversation with David Linehan of Tiber Health. <music> Well, Dr. David Lenhan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to, to talk about this issue. This isn't a, a, a topic that we've you've hit upon before on the podcast, and it's involving uh, medical education. So before I get into the problem that you're trying to solve, I was hoping you could just take a minute and just uh, let the audience know a little bit about yourself. You're a, you're a physician. You're an educated you, an educator. You majored in math, and now you're CEO of a, uh, of a startup. So... Uh, You've had quite the career. What's your background? Yeah, so um, I began my career early on doing mathematics at university. And uh, I, I do like math. And it's, it, it actually has a large impact on how I've gone about developing my career. I went on and went to school at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland and did my degree in electrophysiology and neuroanatomy. And then I went and practiced a little bit at Washington University in St. Louis. And after that, I went and kind of started moving into academics, kind of towards the middle, early middle of my career, and became dean of a medical school at Toro in New York City. And during that process, we developed a new model, a new way of assessing students' progress through the medical education. And it kind of got me some notice. And when I developed this, I didn't realize there was a whole world of people trying to solve educational problems and how we go about delivering education and assessing students. I was just doing this all on my own and it got the attention of some investors and they came and asked me would I be willing to lead a new idea of how we go about delivering health education. And I said yes and I left and we became the first group ever to buy a U.S. medical school. We bought Ponce Health Sciences University which has a medical school. We bought the university, which has a medical school, and have been implementing these ideas into the medical education curriculum. Oh, fantastic. So let's get into the, uh, the problem you're trying to solve. What, what is the problem or are the problems that you're trying to solve at Tiber? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the issues is that medical education really hasn't changed 
for about 120 years. There was this report called the Flexner Report that came out in 1910 that said medical education needs to adapt to the times. <laughs> and everyone quotes this, and no one's really changed. And so we had to develop a new way of go about delivering the information to the students and assessing how they, they knew it. And so that's really what this system is about. And one of the things I find very interesting is that the human body, as we all know, is the same everywhere. If you're in Ethiopia or in Australia or South America, we all have one heart, two lungs, a liver. You know, we all kind of are exactly the same. So if you think any industry would be the leader in providing educational change, it would be healthcare because it's standardized across the globe. Everyone kind of talks the same language. But when you go to these conferences and you go to the education conferences and new ideas and how to deliver education, the only industry that's not there is healthcare. And so we're not taking the lead. And so what we're trying to do with Tiber is show that education should be led by health education because it's standardized across the, the globe. And we should be the ones taking the lead. But right now, unfortunately, we're not. So you've identified the problem you're, you're trying to solve. How does this problem present itself? Uh, how do we see it manifest itself out there today? Well, it manifests itself because we in medical school give large amounts of information in short periods of time to students. And we need to be able to address how and whether they know that information. And I'm going to give you a very specific example of what happened to me and what kind of led me down this road. I teach the brain and I was giving a lecture on the blood supply to the brain. And for two hours I had talked about the blood supply to the brain and the, what happens when one of these vessels get damaged and what a patient is likely to experience with a set of symptoms. So at the end of the class I said, all right, here's a set of symptoms. What vessel was damaged in the brain? And you have a front, a middle, and a back. So I put up the, the question in the front of the class and they had the little student response systems. And I said, which, which vessel was damaged? Front, middle, back. And I made up a fourth answer. And when I looked at the answers, I got 25% A, B, C, and D. When you, when you see that result, you realize that the students have no idea what the correct answer is. They're just kind of guessing at what it is. And so I got mad because every one of these students is going to see a patient next year when they go into their clinicals like this. This is a very pervasive problem in society, and it's important to get it right. And, and I was upset that they didn't know it. So I'm like, this is 5% of your final grade. This is important. Figure it out. So it took them about two seconds to figure it out. 80% of all the strokes happened in the middle, so they all realized that was probably the answer, and they guessed that, and everyone got it right. And I left class. And then I, I, I'm sitting in my office after class, and I'm like, what's going on here? You know, I'm, I'm, I don't understand how they don't know it. So I thought, all right, there's two possibilities here. One, that the 150 students in the classroom are just not clever enough to understand a, a Cambridge, Edinburgh-educated guy like me. Maybe, probably not, but maybe. Or two, and this is really tough for medical educators or any educator, but especially medical educators, what happens if I'm no good? What happens if I'm entertaining, the students like coming to my class, but what happens if I'm not a good teacher? I'm not communicating all this information to the students in a way that they understand it. So what we did was we became the first medical school to get rid of the lecture. And the, the common vernacular is uh, flip lecture, but we called it a dynamic lecture. 
what we did was we gave all the lecture to the students online. And then we still have classrooms. You still have to come to class. But classrooms, we work through clinical cases based on that lecture. And based on what the students knew or didn't know, we would adjust the lecture. We would dynamically alter the lecture based on the knowledge base of the students. Students loved it. The board scores went through the roof. The students started coming to class. The number of people trying to apply to the school went, went up. So it had this real dramatic effect. But the other thing it did was it allowed us to start assessing and using big data into predicting how students do. So because we're asking students in class and we're asking them exam questions and we're asking them clinical questions, we started collecting a whole bunch of data. And we're able to use that data to be able to predict how that student was likely to become as a doctor. And because of that, we were able to do all types of things. We were able to change our admission standards. We were able to accept more black and Hispanic students into our curriculum. We were able to improve our board scores. We were able to improve our placement into communities of need that needed doctors because we were able to predict how the students were likely to, to go into their job placements. And so by changing the way we went about assessing the students and delivering this information really was the paramount piece to developing a new platform for medical education. And that's what we're delivering now across the globe. Very specific question. How are you collecting the data from the students during the classrooms? Are they, are they responding on a, a cell phone app or something? How, is that, how are you able to get that detailed data point? So when I first did it, when I first, that's a great question, Tom. When we first did it, we used the eye clickers, the, the little, the, 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 I don't know, little sticks. The problem was students kept losing them. So now with technology, we just use an iPhone. We, we were able, we built an app and the student just clicks on their iPhone because no student ever forgets their iPhone, right, or their phone. And, and so they always have it in class. And then all that data in real time gets collected on our servers. And based on the difficulty of the question, based on the relevant it is to the boards, based on the clinical nature of the question, we calculate how much value that question is to the student's understanding of the topic. So we just don't look at whether the student got it right or wrong. We look at how difficult the question is and how important it is that question to how you go about treating patients. And then we put all that into a weighted structure. So not only have we changed the way we go about delivering the curriculum, we've gone a, uh, away from the 90, 80, 70 scale of assessing students to where we go have a whole different model of assessing whether students know or don't know the information. And the standards themselves, uh, the measurements of the students after their, their education, that, that's not changing. You're, you're just changing the way you teach, but at the end of the day, they're still taking the same boards that they needed to take before? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's the great thing about the model. Because we have an outcome test, right? Every student in the United States who's going through medical school has to take this outcome test. We get to measure how well our curricular change has done against the United States. And I can tell you that it's been very significant in, in our board scores. We'll take a quick break from this conversation with David Linehan to uh, tell you that the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit has a sibling in the MedTech space called the MedTech Conference. If you have an interest in MedTech, particularly how artificial intelligence is impacting medical technology, you might want to check out our MedTech Conference. The URL is medtechconference.com. Uh, we're going to have the agenda up there shortly. It happens on May 31st. 
in Minneapolis. And of course, registration is already open and doing well. So go to medtechconference.com to learn a little bit more about the MedTech Conference. Now let's get back into this conversation with David Linehan of Tiber Health. What is the state of the the supply of of uh, young doctors? Why why is it important to uh, to help those who perhaps are struggling under traditional educational methods to uh, to succeed? It's a great question. So when we look at other schools, and I'm, I'm giving examples of some of the Ivy League schools, they all talk about how they have uh, a 99.9 percent pass rate on the boards. That's fantastic. They're great schools, and and they do a great job but they're taking the top 1% of the planet. These students are, they should pass the boards. But the problem is a lot of these students that are going there don't go into communities of need. They don't go into the areas where we need doctors. And they tend to go, these students that are, are going to these Ivy League schools go into research. What we're doing is we're taking students who are likely to go into communities where there's a need, Hispanic doctors, black doctors, people from rural areas, first-time college graduates our first-time family college graduates, and we're bringing them into medicine because we believe those are the ones that are, along with the others, but these are the ones that are going to go back into the communities where there's a massive health care shortage. And, and that's how we're going about. That's what our model is about in going to try to solve some of the health care problems and health disparities in the United States. And so the idea is we use all this information to help us adapt our admissions process so we can take students that normally wouldn't go to medical school and have them acquire the medical degree, pass the boards, and then go out into the community and practice. Here's just a a staggering stat. The number of Hispanic physicians in the last 30 years has actually declined in the United States. The number of Hispanic people has increased, and we all know that, but the number of doctors practicing on the community has declined. And, and that cultural competency aspect is a very important part to the healthcare delivery system. And so our model allows us to spend more time on that cultural competency part and, and helping the students understand how to treat patients in, in a different process. When did you first realize that you were not alone in, in recognition that, that things needed to be done differently? Well, I, you know, you go to the, there, there's conferences and, and, and people talk about it. And, and everyone knows that there's a problem, but it seems the inertia to get the change to happen is, is, is very difficult. Medicine will adapt. Medicine will change. We'll, we'll fix the problem. I just need it to be fixed. In my opinion, it needs to be fixed today and not tomorrow. And, and, and so we're just trying to speed that process up and, and take a lead and take a little bit of a lead in that. One of the, one of the, uh, the changes you made that I find particularly fascinating because we've have this conversation amongst uh, our younger kids is the elimination of class rank at high schools and how do you still foster a sense of, of, uh, of, uh, competition, but not put the stress on the individual. And you've developed a, a way to, to, to sort of compare class to class, which I thought was, uh, was fascinating. Can you just tell me a little bit about that? That is probably, of all the things I've done, the one thing I'm most proud of. And it was, it was found by accident. And what happened was I had a student commit suicide on me. And the student was a top student who uh, got a B in a class. It was a clinical class. And the, the young lady was going to have difficulty telling her family. And I thought, you know what? We have to change the stress levels in class. We have to change 
the the way students go about comparing themselves in the class. And when I was a student, we just had a bell curve. 10% of the class got an A, 10% of the class got a, a F, and the, the teacher just curved that class. That thought process is still fairly pervasive in education today. So what I did was I said, you know what? We're going to take away all the competition in the class. I believe in competition, but we took it away from the class. And what we did was we took all the students that were in that class at that time, and we said that you, this class, is going to compete against all the other students that came before you. So what I did was I took the 2,000 students that were in the previous classes, I put them all in a giant pool, and I, I curved that class. And then I set the A, B, and C marks, and I told this class, this new class, I said, all right, all of you guys should work together because everyone can get an A. You guys are competing against the classes that came before you. And I'll tell you, the, the amount of reduction in stress was palpable. You could see the students starting to relax. They sat down in class. They were starting to laugh more. They were working together in teams to solve problems, which is the way we had changed the curriculum. And it made the classroom fun. And then when I, I was thinking, you know, that's really what medicine's about. It's not who makes the diagnosis of diabetes first. It's working as a team to make sure that we get the diagnosis correct the first time. And we need everyone on the, on the same page working together. And that, that, that was a big deal in, in this because, remember, these medical students have been fighting for the grades their entire life. They're A personalities. They've wanted to get the A so they could get into medical school. And well, you know, it took a little bit of time to remove that thought press from them and get them to work together in teams. But once we did that, I can tell you the amount of academic improvement was dramatic because they were willing to work together and not worry about whether or not the other student was going to affect their grade. I love it. I love the idea. So how did the, the creation of this solution lead to uh, a startup, lead to your moving into the CEO role? So what we were able to do is we were able to start predicting how students were going to do on the boards. And we're able to predict that about three months into their medical school career. So by December time of their freshman year, I was able to predict how their board score was going to be with a, a fairly large reliability factor 18 months later. Wow. Well, what were we able, yeah, right. So, so that became very dramatic. And what we're able to do is start identifying when students were starting to trip up and get into trouble. And because of that, what would happen is students would travel on an expected norm. You know, A students tend to get A's, B's get B's, C's get C's. But when they deviated from that expectation, I would call them in my office and I would say, hey, Tom, what's going on? You're an A student and now you're a B plus student or a B student. Nine times out of 10, the student would say, I had to let off some steam. The last exam was too hard. I just couldn't study for this next one. That's fair enough. That happens to all of us. But it's the one time out of 10, and these are real cases where a student says I'm being abused by my parent or by my, my spouse, my child's sick, my mom is sick. You know, something dramatic is about to happen in this student's life. And if you wait too long in the curriculum to find out about it, it's too late. The student drops out and can't make it through medical school. By doing this, we reduced our dropout rates from about 6 to 8% to 2%. 
that delta, that change, and that reduction in the dropout rate resulted in significant cash flow savings for the university. And that got some investors really interested. They're like, hey, if you can you know, change the metrics of admission, you can improve board scores, and you can reduce the dropout rates, we can use all that stuff to help reduce the costs of medical education. Because that's another thing we need to do. We've got to figure out a way to bring down the costs of education, especially for healthcare. And so a group of investors, University Ventures and Daniel Payanko, who's my kind of mentor in this, said to me, hey, why don't you leave and we'll give you some capital to go out and buy a medical school and we'll start this up and expand this type of curriculum across the globe. And I was 40 at the time and I thought, you know what, that sounds like an exciting thing to go do. So I left and we became the first group ever to acquire a U.S. medical school. And, and we've been able to, to really turn this around. And what this is, so Ponce has got a great curriculum, and we use this as our reference point. So all of our students are taking the boards here, and we've been implementing the model that I just had talked about at the university here. And now we're expanding and, and training students in South America, and we're also looking at Africa right now. And what we do is as these students train, they're compared against our standard here in the United States. And so we're able to predict how those students are doing across the globe to a U.S. standard. And that allows us to improve the quality, that allows us to improve the access to healthcare education across the globe. And most important, we're able to reduce the costs. It's great that you know, medical schools cost four or $500 million to build here in the U.S., but you can't spend that type of money in the rest of the part of the planet. So we're able to build medical schools at a much reduced rate. We're able to keep the tuitions within reach of the students in, in areas where they might not have access to capital like we do in the United States. And we're able to deliver the quality that is the gold standard around the world, the United States. Help me understand first the, uh, the economic benefits of, of reducing the dropout rate. Why does that save the university money? Because unlike normal colleges, if a student drops out, you can't backfill the student. You just lose that tuition for the period they drop out over. So if you reduce the dropout rate from 6% to 2%, that 4% delta on 150 students over four years at 40000 a year is roughly $2.2 million in cash. No one's coming in, a, in their sophomore year to a different medical school. You're right. They're there for four years. Yeah. And, and so that, that, that was a huge savings. And that's money then we could use to help reduce tuition, give more scholarships, spend more money on clinical training. Uh, and so that really became a, a, a solid driver in, in building the foundation of what we, we've created. Uh, that had never occurred to me. So what is it that Tiber is offering? What are your solutions? So what we're looking to do is deliver health education across the globe. Our goal is to have five medical schools on five continents in five years with 50 schools using our platform. The more schools that use the platform, the more students that are involved, the better the analytics and the cheaper we can keep the cost structures down. So as we're going out right now, we're in South America, we're looking at Colombia and Peru as our next ex expansions now. And we're building schools. They take the exact same curriculum that the students in Ponce take. So we're able to assess students across the globe using the U.S. standard and be able to identify students who might want to come to the U.S. and practice because they have 
the necessary skills to pass the U.S. boards. We can also use that information to really drive down the costs of health education across the globe so a student in Ethiopia would be able to afford to go to medical school where normally they couldn't. And that's really what Tiber's all about. How do we improve the quality and drive the costs down across the globe for health education? Something that, by the way, the World Health Organization says we're 13 million healthcare workers short on the planet now. So the number of required healthcare workers is staggering. And in our lifetime, we'll never be able to fill that. Our job is to just start that process and get the ball rolling by changing the way we deliver education so that we can ensure that this, this growth that we're trying to create continues. So how are, how are they able to create these medical schools at a lower cost using Tiber's system? Where, where I understand the savings with, with, with lowering the dropout rate, but how do, how do you make creating a, a university or medical school cheaper? So think of, uh, in a, kind of a, a bad way to think of it, but, but think about a, a medical school in a box. So I want to imagine you're a student. When a student walks into Ponce or one of our schools across the globe, we hand them an iPad. The iPad has all the exams on it. It has all the lectures on it. It has all the books on it. So everything is prepackaged and, and ready to be delivered, and it's standardized to a quality that we know is, is good. When you go about building a new medical school, what do you have to do? You have to build bricks and mortar. Then you have to hire a bunch of faculty in. Then you have to develop a curriculum. Then you have to go about setting up that curriculum with exams. All that stuff costs, in the United States, hundreds of millions of dollars. The average medical school costs $150 million, according to Forbes, to open up. And in fact, in Texas, the Dell School is $500 million over budget right now. You just can't do that the rest of the world. So what we're able to do is go into these communities and say, look, we have everything ready to go. It's standardized. Medicine is global. Every, as we said earlier on, the human body is the same across the globe. So what we can do is we can go into a, a new school and say, we will deliver this quality to this standard at a much lower cost because we have everything prepared and ready to go. And that's how we do it. So will the bulk of your business be in the creation of those new schools or will it be sell, selling some sort of a package to existing schools that want to recreate the way they do things? Both. And, and what we do is we go out and we create a new school. We can do that at a much lower rate into a place that might not have a medical school. There's actually 45 countries in the world that don't have medical schools. Or we can go into communities that have medical education systems, but they're just not running very efficiently and they have high costs. And so we're able to help them reduce their costs, which in effect reduces the cost to the students. Final question. We open this up by saying how slow healthcare is to adopt new approaches and new ideas. So how receptive have people been to this idea at existing medical schools? It kind of depends on the age bracket, to be honest, Tom. We find that the younger faculty and deans are much more receptive than maybe people in my age bracket. And, and I'm the older guy now. <laughs> <laughs> <Me too>. So... <laughs> so <laughs> The, uh, the younger ones recognize that there has to be a new way to do this. We can't just continue having a faculty stand in front of the classroom and lecture. We have to get the students more engaged. So we're finding a lot more receptability to that with those groups. Um, I would probably say 25% of the schools are very receptive. 
50% are like, eh, we'll take a look at this, but we're not sure. And then 25% are, nope, we're going to continue the way we're doing it right now. But I, I think the receptiveness will increase kind of like the driverless car. Yes, everyone's kind of not sure about it right now, but in 25, 30 years, it will be pervasive among society. Same idea with this. It will change. It will just take some time to to become more incorporated into the medical education society. Excellent. Well, it's a great idea, and I can't wait to see uh, how things play out. Thanks for taking some time to explain it to us. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate your time. Terrific. That's a wrap. David Lenahan of Tiber Health, thank you for joining us. We appreciate you introducing us to uh, an exciting new company. And again, another area in medical school reform that we're seeing investors paying more attention to. So something we'll be tracking in the future. Breaking Health Podcast listeners, thank you again for tuning in. If you wouldn't mind doing us a few favors, number one, give us a ranking on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to. Number two, please do subscribe to the podcast so we'll send these podcasts or the ones in the future directly to your listening device. Number three, tell your friends about the Breaking Health Podcast if they enjoy innovation and healthcare as much as you do. Finally, please reach out directly to me. My email is tom at healthag.com. That's the word health, followed by letters egy.com. Healthagy is the producer of the Breaking Health Podcast and the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit, which is happening on October 11th in Boston. We don't have an agenda for that yet, but we will uh, begin working with our co-chairs, Bill Gary and Robert Mittendorf, on putting together another stellar program. So that's a wrap, folks. Thanks again for tuning in, and tune in next time for another great tale of innovation on the Breaking Health Podcast.